Is this war different from others? You are listening to the podcast Explain Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. Every war is different, yet they share a lot of similarities. Bosnia, Syria, Iraq, Chechnya, Ukraine. How can these wars be compared? What are the patterns of Russian actions in Chechnya and Syria which are being repeated in Ukraine? Why should we talk about evil? My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. In this episode, I speak to Janine Di Giovanni, a prominent American war correspondent who has worked in Chechnya, Iraq, Syria, Bosnia, and many other places. She is now the executive director of the Reckoning Project, which combines the power of storytelling and legal accountability to fight for justice, safeguard rights, and restore truth in the face of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We do this conversation within our series Thinking in Dark Times, which seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Before we start, let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, a Ukrainian media NGO. We are based in Ukraine. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Janine Di Giovanni, welcome to this podcast. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So you are a journalist who visited so many wars and so many very difficult and very tragic situations. And when you, you travel a lot in Ukraine, and we are talking in Kiev, and when you look at this war, at Russian invasion, do you see it as something special or you just see the returning crimes all the time in in Iraq, in Rwanda, in Syria, in, in, in Ukraine? Every war is different, but there are also many similarities. So when it comes to absolute indiscriminate attacks on civilians and the disproportionate use of force, what I see in Ukraine, which is tragic, but also interesting for me as a conflict analyst, is that this is Putin's third war that I've reported. And I see very sustained patterns between what he did in his, his first war, which was the second Chechen war, um, and the fall of Grozny in the late January of 2000, his destruction of Aleppo in 2016. He joined the fight, of course, in, in Syria in 2015, aiding Bashar al-Assad by supplying air power. Um, however, with that air power, what he did was focus intently on destroying medical facilities, schools, and heavily residential areas. So it was an attempt to terrorize the population. Um, by terrorizing them, by subduing them, uh, it was a way of basically trying to bring the population to their knees. Very similar to what he what he did in Mariupol, the destruction of Mariupol, attacking a theater, or in Kharkiv, where we see 
close residential areas that have been attacked without military facilities near them. Um, even what's going on in Kyiv right now, as we're sitting here at nighttime bombing of population in residential areas. Um, I mean, are they being careful to stick to the rules of uh, the, the laws of war? Not at all. This is in many ways a war against civilians. And I suppose his aim would be the to turn the tide of the public, that they are so exhausted by war, so downtrodden by it, that they would put pressure on the government to begin some cycle of negotiations, which of course isn't going to happen. Not now, anyway. So I see that. Um, someone asked me yesterday if there was a similarity between the war in Ukraine and the war in Bosnia. Um, both were wars of aggression, absolutely, but very different in that Bosnia neighbors turned on neighbors very quickly. So village to village, um, even sometimes trench by trench in, in the battlefields above Sarajevo, were kids who went to high school together. And from their trenches, they would call out, you know, how's your sister? Or I saw your mother the other day, she's okay. And to me, you know, one of the one of the many tragedies about the war in Bosnia was that these close-knit people were ripped apart by, by a brutal war. Let me come back to Syria. Um, I had a conversation on this podcast with uh, uh, a French expert on Syria, Jean-Pierre Philippe. Of course, Sian yeah. yeah. And he told me that, uh, look, there is a very close uh, parallel, is that Syrian doctors would be calling Ukrainian doctors at the beginning of this full-scale invasion, uh, saying them, uh, never put red crosses on your cars yeah. because uh, you you will be a target for the Russian troops. Absolutely. Is it right? Yes, it's absolutely. You know, the Geneva Conventions were set out to protect civilians, medical facilities, prisoners of war, journalists, and... Putin has consistently and flagrantly um, mocked these conventions. So in Syria, if you killed a doctor, you killed 100 people because a, a doctor is the head of the community, um, especially in Aleppo. Let's look at Aleppo. By the end of the war, um, I mean, I was sheltering in a triage hospital, right? So it wasn't even, it was a kind of... <laughs> building like this, not even. The main doctor was a young resident. So like in American terms, that would be someone that just finished medical school and was beginning his residency. And this young doctor was basically in charge of all of the wounded, all of the um, critically injured that were being brought in from nightly terrifying air raids. Um, so by taking doctors out of the equation as being the heads of community, you were weakening, it was a top-down way of, of completely weakening Syrian society. And, and also um, making people so tired of war that they would then say, okay, we're leaving. It's a way of emptying out the cities as well. It's, it's easy ethnic cleansing. Um, bomb them into submission um, so that they will get on the road with their children, with their families, and walk to Turkey. Um, so Ukraine has been different because there is, and I think largely this is because there's been such international support, 
um, there is such resistance to to Putin. And you know, while a huge number of people did flee in the beginning, um, when we were very unsure of how how close he would get to Kiev, for instance, um, many have come back. Whereas in Syria, you know, you have Assad and Putin effectively emptied entire parts of the country of the opposition. Um, so it was a very effective and incredibly cruel strategy to target doctors and military hospitals. They should be off, absolutely hands off. Um, it's just the decent and humane thing to do in, in war. I still, uh, as a philosopher, I can rationally explain it. Uh, for example, I mean, if you look at the classical philosophers, what we will tell you, like Montesquieu, he would tell you the tyrant rules by fear. And the more fear you produce, the better you, you power you have, right? But then when I look at what does it mean in practice, I mean, hospitals... Uh, There is a story of Mariupol Hospital told by Mstislav Chernov and Yevian Malaletka when they were in the hospital and there was a, a tank uh, shooting at the hospital. And I've seen another story in a, in a town called Trostyanet, which is in Sumer region, where the two Russian tanks, we were told this story afterwards, of course, in March uh, 2022, Trostyanet was occupied. It's on the north. And two Russian tanks approached the hospitals and just started shooting at it. And uh, then we have seen those buildings, multi-story buildings in Izum and Borodyanka, which were bombed by aviation. And people in Izum were hiding in the basement. So they were literally hiding in the basement, in the concrete basement. And they would have survived if they would be just shelled by tanks. But they were shelled from the aviation bombs and, and they died uh, in a matter of seconds. And this does not explain any any military purpose on this, mm. right? That you you attack civilians, you target civilians. So, as a philosopher, I can understand it rationally, but I cannot understand it emotionally. I cannot understand that person that has this in mind and that draws a plan and says, okay, we'll bomb a hospital. Do you have experience of talking or, or with these people or meeting them? What is it like to be to be such a person who thinks like that? So I spend a lot of time in hospitals. I actually I come from a family of doctors, and I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a humanitarian doctor when I was a kid. Um, my life took a different path, and here I am. So throughout my many years of reporting war, the first place I'd ever go was a hospital. Because to me, doctors were usually... First of all, they were quite, it's not that they were neutral, but they would just give you facts, right? They would tell you, they could very quickly brief you on what the situation was. Um, they could give you very basic humanitarian facts, like, for instance, let's take Sarajevo. Sarajevo was besieged by Bosnian Serb forces for more, nearly four years. That meant a complete encirclement by Serb tanks, but also by snipers, so the cruelest. And they were on all the hills. They would shoot down onto civilians who were trying to cross the road. So the way we would cross the road is we'd gather a group of 10, 20 people, and then we'd run really quickly so that they couldn't focus on the knees of children and women, which is what they usually did. Um, so it gives you an, an example of the cruelty of this. So the hospitals, for me, 
were a place that I would go and I would talk to the doctors who were working under the most primitive conditions. So Sarajevo really had very little electricity. Once in a blue moon, um, a generator would cough up. Um, but the doctors worked with headlamps and they had very little medical supplies. So often they didn't have enough anesthetic for the many amputations they had to do. Um, they were unbelievably heroic. I mean, those emergency room doctors of Sarajevo, books have been written about them. Um, they just kept working, you know, they, they just kept their job. So for me, I would go there and I would also go to the morgue. My great reference point um, was every morning to walk out of my, it wasn't really a hotel, but where I lived, um, the Holiday Inn, and run <laughs> in a pattern so the snipers didn't get me and uh, go to the morgue. And at the morgue, I would talk to a man who ran the morgue and could brief me on what had happened. And remember, this is before internet, right? Or, or cell phones or computers even. So we had no way of knowing what was going on on the other side of town. You actually literally had to go and talk to people. What happened here last night? How many people were killed? So the guy in the morgue, knew everything. And there's a terrible story. Um, one day, he went to the morgue early in the morning, five in the morning, and he was getting his coffee, and he began to look at the bodies that had come in the night before from a battle on a mountain outside Sarajevo called Zuch. And there, on the slab, was his teenage son, who had been killed overnight. And... Um, Many years later, I went back to see my friend from the morgue um, because I never really got Bosnia out of my system. You know, it was one of my very first wars, and I um, fell in love with the, the people and the commitment and their courage. So I went back to see my friend, and um, I was having tea with him and his wife, and suddenly what looked to me like his son, the young fighter who was killed, walked in. And I, you know, because I had seen photographs of his son, and um, his son's wife was pregnant at the time, and this was the boy. And it was just, you know, and the other person that worked in the morgue um, had killed himself, hung himself, right before the war ended, because he had just seen such darkness and such evil. So, I mean, as, as a conflict reporter, um, really... What my work has been all these years has been recording evil and, and being in the presence of great evil, the men who did it, the war criminals. Um, and I've sat across the way I'm sitting across from you with the man who was responsible for the destruction of Sarajevo and uh, an academic called Nikolai Kolyevich, who is a Shakespearean scholar, extraordinarily brilliant, University of Chicago, PhD, um, and I sat up all night, one night with him drinking, Slivovica. And it, at the end of the night, as dawn was breaking, he said his motivation for destroying the National Library of Sarajevo, where millions of Ottoman manuscripts went up in flames in August 1992, was that he had never been made a full professor at the University of Sarajevo because he was a Serb and that the Muslims, the bloody Muslims, were running Sarajevo University. I couldn't believe my ears that, you know, 
these kind of petty grievances had lodged into such a bitterness that one of the architects for the destruction of a city was was talking about his, his bitterness at not being made a bloody full professor. And you know what? I heard those kind of stories. That wasn't a one-off. There was a judge in Sansky Most who was put in a concentration camp and beaten and tortured. And when he was finally released, his torturer said to him, don't you remember me, judge? And he said, no, I'm so sorry, I don't, other than you are my torturer. And he said, no, you gave me a DWI, drunk under the influence, and took away my license for a year. And I couldn't drive, and I lost my job, and then I lost my wife, and it was all because of you. So these are the kind of war stories that um, I, I've collected over the years. So this brings us to the question of, of evil, and uh, there is a classic uh, dimension about reflection about evil, this banality of evil of, of Hannah Arendt. But then uh, what I'm asking myself is uh, you are describing people which are not banal, which are kind of, you know, university professors or something else, which have this pitiness of, of, of reaction to something. And uh, what I also feel in this war is that what Hannah Arendt describes is rather the mechanics of evil. Like when it all started, it, it, all, it is all supported by banal people who just outsource their responsibility to somewhere else. But then there should be someone who starts this, right? Who, who wants violence, who is not committing violence by, by, by the only fact that he is only obedient to somebody. And I personally feel that there is there is something in in for example in 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 Russian wars or maybe in Bosnian wars that gives people a certain pleasure of violence, the, the pleasure of power, which and and maybe this is be, because they mix violence and power. I have to tell you that um, I've written an entire book about torture in Syria, so I know quite. It took me eight years. I know quite a bit about torture. Um, unfortunately. And when I went to Bucha to take some testimonies, um, I, you know, sometimes had to leave the room and because I was beginning to get emotional, which, like, as an investigator, you, you, you really can't do that. Because the, some of the torture was, you know, torture is always cruel, but the bestiality of it shocked me. And I, um, you know, the lowest form of, of humanity to me is, is torture. So, you know, we're getting reports now from Herson about the prisons, which um, we at the Reckoning Project, we, we've been documenting this as well. Um, and again, we're going back to like classic law of war, right? Of like what you should be doing to prisoners and the attention that should be paid to respecting uh, not bombing civilians. Another Putin story, which I'd like to share with you because it, it haunts me. It's like one of those things when I wake up at night and I have a nightmare, this is one of them. So Grozny fell in January, the end of January. Um, and, I, you know, I would give the advice to any reporter or journalist, never be in a city that has fallen to the aggressive forces because they will kill you, right? 
And I had the advantage of not even having a Russian visa. I had snuck over the border from Ingushetia. Um, so the Russian troops who were coming in were, were, were going to kill me. Um, and, and I would have been a collateral, you know, collateral damage. Um, they did not want witnesses to the terror that ensued after the fall. Um, but I eventually went back in somehow before they kicked me out. Like I had gone in with the Chechen forces and then I was there for a month or something, Grozny fell, and then I went back out and came back in with some Russian doctors, emergency workers, and I hitched a ride on the back of their truck. Now, I could not understand, nor could I get any kind of moral answer from them as to how doctors, humanitarians, were going in and patching up people that they had just bombed, you know? And they had these completely neutral responses that just basically, we are doctors, you know? We're here to sew up wounds and take out shrapnel and, you know, fix prosthetics to amputated limbs. But there was one place that I found which was absolutely haunting, and it was a house of the blind. Um, they had been so badly bombed that when I went in, there was no roof, and uh, like the stairways had no walls, so blind people need their touchstones, and they there was nothing. Like the, the staircase was exposed to the elements, and it was January or February, it was freezing. Um, and I went to a room, and they were all sitting there with their white canes and their sunglasses. I didn't realize I was in a house for the blind. I stumbled into this room full of civilians, and then I thought, something's very strange. They're, they're, they've all got white canes and glasses. And um, I said, uh, what are you doing here? And they said, we're waiting for someone to come and help us. And it was then that I realized that the people that run away from war or from a battle are the ones that can. They have money or they have a car or they're able to walk, they're physically fit. The ones who stay behind are the poor and the old and the sick and the insane. So the aftermath of Grozny, before the Russian occupation, the machine really took full scale was like a walking insane asylum. There were people wandering around screaming because, of course, you've been under uh, aerial attack. The sound of a aerial bombardment or helicopter gunship going on for months and months and months, which is what these people had endured, had driven them mad. So I, you know, how can you not see Putin as evil? after that. And that was his very first war. That was, you know, he'd been elected in or came to power in August, right? So that was only six months into his term. And he had clearly determined to flatten Grozny into a parking lot. When I'm now traveling uh, in Ukraine, in those also destroyed villages, completely destroyed. So... I, I still haven't been in a city which is completely destroyed, but uh, I've been to the villages. It's uh, around Izum, between Izum and Slovyansk, there was very heavy fightings. And uh, I see people right now. So imagine imagine there is a village of hundreds of houses and uh, everything is destroyed. There is not a single house. Maybe there are some houses which are, which are there. And uh, every time we, we, we come there, we see the growing number of people who come back. On the one hand, we can say that 
this is mostly elderly people, not young people. But but still, this uh, there is a feeling that okay, when the fighting is over, we will come back. We will come back to our places. We will still be living in ruins. But these are these are our ruins. Have you seen it all also on on in other countries that there is kind of a linkage to to your place, even if it's ruined. But as soon as uh, the war disappears, you you come back and live there. Absolutely. Uh, where I have not seen it is Syria because it's not safe. So the determination for refugees to go home, and I worked for the UN Refugee Agency, is that it must be safe. So Syria, you know, refugees are still basically, you know, I, how many, I, I don't, it's, it's over, I can't even remember the figure anymore. It's millions of people fled, 7 million, I think. Um, and they're largely in, in Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, um, they can never go home, right? Even if Homs is rebuilt, even if Aleppo is rebuilt um, as an as a city, an Assad city, um, it's not safe for many people. And so the the pain of a refugee who's in exile forever is one of the most profound pains I think I've, I've witnessed. I've spent a lot of time with refugees, and by the way, this is why it gets me so angry when I the brief period I lived in America under Donald Trump um, and his whole issue with the southern border and saying, you know, these rapists are coming to our country. I've never met one refugee or migrant in my life who was going to a country, you know, wanted to go to Sweden so they had free health care. They were all driven out because no one wants to leave their home. I mean, think about it. You would have to leave all of your photographs, your pets. Ukrainians love animals. Um, so you leave your pets behind, you leave your photos, your wedding photos, your furniture, all of your clothes, you pack one bag, you take your documents and you leave for what you in the bottom of your heart know is probably forever. Now, I'm the daughter of an Italian immigrant. Um, my grandfather was an anti-fascist in, in Southern Italy and the family fled. Um, and that kind of fleeing is transgenerational trauma that takes a really long time to filter down into some sense of security. And my family integrated very well into America. But, you know, imagine that you're a Ukrainian farmer who had a small plot of land, not a huge grain farm, but a small plot, and it's been burnt and destroyed. How do you come back? So this is why I'm very worried about the reconstruction of Ukraine. Um, I believe the trickiest part of war is not the actual battlegrounds and the fighting. It's what happens after. And that's why the Reckoning Project is really dedicated to transitional justice or to ensuring that in this aftermath, justice is delivered. Because if you don't get that, you go back to what is now happening in Bosnia with Putin stirring it all up again. You will have fighting in 30 years, maybe 20 years. Wars have to end well. Even despite what happened, there has to be periods of healing, not just rebuilding uh, ministries or, or villages. It's, it's about the trauma that people went through when they fled or what they witnessed. Um, and in many ways, you know, witnesses coming forward to give evidence of what they saw can be very healing. I'm also thinking about this, and we there is a topic in Ukrainian discussions, how 
not to lose peace, right? And uh, how to win the war but not to lose peace. And and frankly, this bothers me a lot because, of course, during the war you have this consolidation and and everything, but then people get tired and uh, and there are these cracks in the society that appear, and we see these cracks in the Ukrainian society between those who are on the front line, those who are not, those who stayed in the country, those yeah. who did not, those who were on the bombings, those who who were not on the bombings, and uh, and and it it can turn into mutual accusation, and it is turning sometimes into mutual accusation, and I personally feel that this mutual accusation comes when a person actually accuses yourself like you're saying i'm guilty in something and therefore i have this feeling of guilt before something and then i will rather uh, like export this feeling of guilt on some some somebody else so it's it's also work with yourself but how to avoid it how to avoid these these cracks how to avoid that uh, the society looks forward, does not forget about the past, about the, the the past war, but still looks forward because Europe succeeded in that in uh, after the Second World War with with lots of troubles. Bosnia, as you say, did not succeed in that. Yeah. Syria, as far as I understand, is very very difficult. Did not, and Iraq has not succeeded. Afghanistan has not succeeded. South Sudan has not succeeded. Um, we could, we could, we'll talk about wars that have ended well and how, how societies have managed to mend in some ways. But I just want to go back to something about what you were saying about the fragments in society. And, you know, there will definitely come a time when the war ends and all the very wealthy Ukrainians that are now in Warsaw, you know, building the French school in the suburbs and um, new plastic surgery clinics. I mean, I have a lot of friends that complain about this. They're going to come back in their Mercedes. And there's going to be a lot of resentment from the community that endured the nightly air raids or endured the villages being smashed. So that's really important. And you're a Francophile, so you know what happened in France. Um, in the early days of the liberation of Paris, you know, women who may or may not have slept with a German soldier were dragged out into the street and their heads were shaved. And, you know, Calabo was, you know, the refrain of, of some people who were innocent. Um, I, I come from a, a French family that, you know, or from the Vercors, and that was the, one of the most heavily fought over regions in France. Um, part of the family were in the Resistance, um, which every family in France will say they were in the Resistance, but, you know, they generally were, and they went up to the caves to fight the Nazis and fight the Germans. But another part wanted to stay alive, and they had small children, and so they when the Germans came to their farm, they gave them milk or they gave them eggs, not wanting to, but that was their way of staying alive. And I've often had this philosophical discussion with my French friends who get very angry and they just say, unless you have lived under occupation, you have no idea how you would respond. Now, I like to think I would spit in the face of a Nazi or a Russian and say, fuck you. Um, but what if my tiny son was there and I had to protect him? You know, would I have done favors for a German officer? I don't think so, personally, because I live by a different coda. But I do think we have to think about all these levels of society and how you are going to reintegrate them after the war. Because that's going to be painful. Um, and everyone, you know, now it is wartime, so you have three choices, basically. You... <laughs> You do nothing, you look away, or you do the right thing. 
So I think those are the choices that we're given in times of great existential crisis, which is right now in, in this kind of a war. And I think from what I can see from the Ukrainians I know and I've met, or my team at the Reckoning Project, they're doing the right thing. You know, so they, when the war ends, they'll hold their heads high. Um, but how the country is rebuilt and how you begin to heal will determine whether or not it is diplomacy that ends the war, or if it's a frozen conflict, which is what Washington is predicting. I personally don't think that's the way it's going to go. A country that's a good example of healing is Sierra Leone, um, which was a tiny country in West Africa, minute, but which endured a 14-year civil war, which was horrific. Um, the rebel forces practiced cruelty. I mean, they, they chopped off people's arms, either at the wrist or the elbow, to show their power. So I saw six-month-old babies that had amputated arms. Um, it, there was one point where I walked around Freetown, and it was like every second person had an amputated arm. Yet this country managed to go through a healing process, um, which was really community-led and, and grassroots-led. And I'll just give you two very concrete examples of how this could come about, because this might be useful for you um, as a philosopher and as a public intellectual when the time comes. It's the Truth and Reconciliation Committees of South Africa. So they were set up, and basically, I mean, they were set up to bring the perpetrators and the victims together under one roof, usually in the countryside, um, so people would come together and they would tell their stories. Now that probably isn't going to be possible in Ukraine because you're not going to have the, well, maybe you'll have the perpetrators here, but in most cases you're not going to have that. But what you can have is storytelling. And storytelling, any trauma psychiatrist or any trauma specialist will tell you is absolutely the first step in any kind of healing. So I think <clears throat> what's really important is that people record their memories right now. Whether you know, you're living in a small village and you go around the village and you talk to people about what they've witnessed or people's experience of life during wartime. But in the aftermath of the war, it's gonna be really important to do that, um, to, to not cover it up. I mean, a lot of French history of the war isn't really talked about. People don't wanna talk about it. Bosnia as well. There is a generation now who do not want to talk about what happened in the war. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of pain, obviously. But I think one of the most important things is to get this kind of collective therapy. Um, and I, I promise that has this extraordinary power of healing a society. You know, when I talk to people in the, the occupied territories so or or very difficult stories. For example, recently we talked to a man who lost seven members of his family during, due to this airstrike on Izum. Well, one year has passed, so he kind of, uh, he went through a very difficult period and now he can openly talk. Uh, and, uh, and actually he, we had the impression that he wants to talk and there is lots of other people who want to talk. And uh, I have this impression that in Ukraine people want to share the stories. And uh, 
We had a conversation with, uh, you probably know this Le Monde reporter, Florence Obena, mm-hmm. uh, who is a, a, a very good reporter and with her story also in, in uh, her very uh, dramatic story, personal. But she says that what strikes her in Ukraine, that people want to talk much more than in other countries about suffering, about l- losses, about their experience. Do you have this impression? I do. Um, Our witnesses, you know, they have to be consenting witnesses and they want to tell their stories and they want to go to court. I mean, I've found in many countries, um, especially Africa, um, Africa, you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Somalia, Congo, the level of horror and pain is so deep. And yet when I would talk to people, they, they almost underplayed what they had gone through because there was this kind of shame about having, having endured it. Um, I always found that, you know, if I, I wasn't a very good reporter because if someone didn't want to talk to me, I never forced them. And I've seen many journalists do the opposite, you know, like, please give me your story. It's important to tell the world. But if people don't want to talk, you, you, you can't, you can't force them to. I think Ukraine is really exceptional in the way that people feel, um, look, we want this story to be told because not only do we want the world to know now, we want historical memory to be preserved. And I think part of this, and this is my own analysis, is because of the deep historical trauma endured in this land. I mean, I... Um, you know, I was my early education was in America, and in America, when we learn, when we're taught World War II, we study the Western Front. We don't study the Eastern Front at all, and and the massive casualties and the Holodomor. I mean, that was pre World War II, but Stalin, Stalin's terrors. Um, I saw a film about World War II in Belarus called Come and See. Do you know this extraordinary film? Um, that had been smuggled out of Soviet Russia. Um, I watched it and then I watched it again because I just kept thinking about the, the trauma of, of these places that stays in the land. So what Ukraine endured, Kharkiv and these areas where the Holodomor was so prevalent and villages that became ghost villages and, and dying of hunger, um, that doesn't go away in a generation because the survivors would pass that on to their children and then those children would pass it on the same way Holocaust survivors um, pass on their deep trauma to their children. It's inevitable. So I think for Ukraine to heal, we need to find a way of breaking this transgenerational trauma and also the trauma sustained from this aggression, this current aggression. And I think the way to do that is to take testimonies, but also you don't need to be a war crimes investigator the way the, the Reckoning Project is. You could be you know, in your village, in your apartment block, and what does the woman next door, the old lady next door, how has she lived through this war? What was her daily life like? Did she lose anyone? Um, these things are, it's like what I told you about the guy in the morgue, right? That guy in the morgue in Bosnia, to me, is a recorder of history. 
He didn't write it down. Actually, he did write it down. And it was called The Book of the Dead. And it was a book that had the names of every dead body that was on his slab in the morgue. Uh, and that was the name of the story I wrote about it in, in Granta. It was called The Book of the Dead. And we are all recorders of history, but we, we have to actually do it. You know, we, we travel uh, across Ukraine with our, with our colleagues from Penn Ukraine. And once we actually we go to deoccupied uh, places and we collect people, usually in the libraries, and we talk to them. And in every place, the talk is different. In one of the pl places, people start reading their poetry. In some other places, people start telling their stories. And in Okhtyrka, for example, which was not occupied, but which was a, a place of fight. It, it turned into a, a collective therapy session. Like for three hours, people would come and tell their stories. They were, some of them were laughing, some of them were crying. And at some moment, we understood that, yeah, we came here from Kiev, and, and maybe, maybe we created this occasion to, to talk, and this is really was very emotionally deep and, and very important. Maybe my, my last question, tell me about this reckoning project. Why is it, is it needed? And um, what is the aim of it? Is justice, right? The, the, key, the key goal is justice or, or testimony. How do you see it? So the reckoning project is, uh, was founded by Peter Pomerantsev and myself. And then we joined forces with Natalia Gumenyuk. Um, the Ukrainian journalist, and we basically, in short, we're a war crimes unit. We investigate war crimes by taking human testimony. But we are journalists, so we cannot lose that part of ourselves that are storytellers. So part of our testimonies are used for to help prosecutors and to help make the justice system go faster, because most times investigators don't arrive on the scene of battlefields or of war until after wars are over. And then it's too late. Witnesses die, witnesses leave, they age, they can't remember. So we do it immediately. And we're verifying as we go along. So we have a very efficient archive. But we use that archive as well for storytelling. And that's just what you and I have been spending these past 40 minutes doing. We've been telling stories. Um, War, war stories especially have a potency um, because for us it's a way of capturing history, um, of ensuring historical memory, ensuring that the narrative is not rewritten, that, you know, we always say evidence does not lie, but equally we want to keep the narrative straight. Um, again, going back to Bosnia or Rwanda, two places where the narrative has been distorted post-war by revisionist historians who, who turn, you know, actual battles and things that happen like Srebrenica, the, the genocide of Srebrenica, into an entirely different story of what actually happened. And the same thing with Rwanda. There are those um, who have written books basically distorting the, the genocide that a million people were slaughtered in. So The Reckoning Project is a way of ensuring that never happens because we're locking down the truth in our archives, and that doesn't lie. So we combine 
legality with storytelling, uh, which is very unique. Um, and we're very proud of, of where we are. We've built an incredible team of Ukrainian researchers who also feel some sense of agency that they're contributing to the justice of their country. So um, it's something, you know, Peter and I thought about. We're very quickly operational, like within weeks, um, and, and something that has grown in a year to a really remarkable project. I'm really proud of it. That's very good. And uh, it's, it's also good that we are also thinking at Ukraine World in this direction. And we just launched a website, which is called Book of Memory, and which is also cooperation with Ukrainian human rights defenders. So we would go to human rights defender organizations like uh, Helsinki Group or Kharkiv Human Rights Group. They have also big archives of these war crimes. And we would talk to these people and make a story uh, out of them. So to make it not just factual, but really in storytelling. Human. Yeah, human. Uh, so... Indeed, I, I really share with you this 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 goal. Janine Di Giovanni, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Thank you so much for listening to me. This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, a Ukrainian media NGO. We are based in Ukraine. You can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.